The reason that our country is in the mess that it is in today is not because of the Republicans, it's not because of the Democrats. Let me tell you this, it's because of lame Christians. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have an amazing subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform which you listen to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Be sure to check out our ever-growing fan page on Facebook when you type in the search bar at Mighty Fortress 313. We do have a YouTube channel as well. Be sure to hit that subscribe and notification bell to help the channel grow. You're going to be able to find that when you type in our Mighty Fortress podcast. It helps it come up on the list on the search bar. You can also take a look at our website where everything is hosted, OurMightyFortress.com. If you feel so motivated to donate to the, do, the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website in the established PayPal link. Of course, if we have helped you in some way, we'd love to be able to hear about it. Go ahead and email us at OurMightyFortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I want to talk about the greatness of God. It's so easy to get caught up with the daily struggles of life and what's wrong with other people or what's wrong with our lives or what's wrong with the country. But I want to take this podcast and walk you through just a few areas, but great in scope, of how great the creator of the universe is. There are so many verses to do this, but I do want to take a look at a select passage in the book of Habakkuk. To set a little bit of context around this passage is that the nation of Judah was at the point of destruction due to God's judgment, and the prophet Habakkuk had questions for God. Now, that's in the beginning of the book. It's only three chapters long. But towards the end of the book, in chapter 3, we find that Habakkuk is reflecting on the greatness of God and the fullness of his power. As we examine some of the things that Habakkuk is telling us, let us reflect upon the greatness of God in our own lives. With that introduction, let's get right into this. I want to start with something that's actually quite the contrary to the greatness of God. I want to take a look at man and why he thinks himself great. 
It's quite a question. And it's easy to look at others who are quite proud, but never see the, the proud look or the proud heart within ourselves. The things that we say that we're great, when we puff up ourselves, you know, when you think of something or someone who is great, I mean, what definition really comes to our minds? I mean, it's easy to see sports icons, you know, they can do amazing feats of athletics or maybe even a doctor who, you know, was able to save a child or save uh, another human being through some surgery or some cure uh, to an illness or maybe some sort of heroic event that took place like a rescue of uh, someone going to a burning car and pulling somebody out or we see those kind of things as great. Of course, men could build great structures and, and look at the work of their hands and say, wow, that is great. But at the point of the passage in the book of Habakkuk, the nation of Judah, they themselves thought that they were great. And they didn't heed the warnings of the prophets that, that God had sent. Many of the world leaders of that time proclaimed their own greatness, yet they had fallen. You can look at Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. God specifically gave him a passage in scripture where he, he humbled him and had him go out as an animal eating grass and people thought he was crazy. He was crazy. He lost his mind. God took his mind from him for seven years and then gave it back to him. And then Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed the greatness of God. But look all throughout history. Those who have proclaimed their own greatness and have, have fallen. Alexander the Great. Julius Caesar of Rome. Much further in history. Napoleon Bonaparte of France. Even in modern, modern times, we have Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, or Pol Pot. And of course, if we're talking about any of the American politicians, we're bound to make some people mad. But history is filled with powerful leaders and conquerors who sought to give themselves the title of great. But only one deserves the title of great, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our history books are formed around the idea that the progression of man, and it points to the great things that man has done throughout history. And it can be in just various time periods, different events that transpired. I mean, contrary to some of the modern textbooks and schools that paint man as like this walking caveman and incompetent, ancient civilizations have accomplished some great feats. I mean, think about some of the structures from the pyramids in Egypt that are still standing. I mean, think about it. We couldn't, without great difficulty today, replicate these works. I mean, we've relied so much on technology that even with technology, we'd have a hard time accomplishing what they did with without forklifts or cranes or anything else like that. Of course, you have the ancient city of Babylon. The city was a sight to behold. There's many records that talk about it having 300-foot walls and the magnificent metropolis that was behind those walls. I can't even imagine if I was part of an army looking at a 300-foot wall. I mean, how tall does a... A, a siege ladder have to be 301 foot, you know, <laughs> who's going to bring that ladder to the wall? Or how about the ancient city of Tyre? 
God has quite a bit to say about that city. This used to be the trading capital of the world at one time and the people associated with it. But this city too had unbelievably high and thick walls. How about the ancient Asian capitals, the Grecian cities and massive marble temples and the Roman metropolis and the city of Rome and the Colosseum and the Hippodrome and you can go throughout all history. These are just a few of the examples of the ancient great wonders of the world. But what is it that really makes us proclaim our own greatness? See, the Bible calls it the pride of life. We see in the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We have no problem proclaiming how great we are. If anything goes right, we tend to think that we're something. We can be a part of a sports league or or even something less, and we accomplish something, and yet we're the best things in sliced bread. It's kind of funny how that works. Book of Proverbs, chapter 20, and verse 6, it says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Now, what makes up a faithful person? Now, that's a whole different subject. But pride has a funny way of doing things to people. I mean, we can take it an extreme and say, well, have you ever been around somebody who all they did was just talk about how great they are? <laughs> I mean, somebody else's pride irritates the tar out of us, but, you know, our pride is just so subtle and we don't see that as, that's eh, not that bad. But, you know, the pride has been the downfall of many leaders in history, not just leaders, but man in general. It could be a leader of a home. It could be somebody in the workplace. But think about this. God distinctly hates pride. In fact, pride is the most hated sin in all of the scriptures. Can you imagine for me for a moment that of all the sins, the most terrible sins that you could possibly think of, the worst is pride? The book of Proverbs, chapter 6, starting in verse 16, it says, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination unto him. A proud look, that's number one. A lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among many brethren. Now that's very interesting. That list of sins. I mean, we could place a lot of other atrocious things that we could possibly think about in that list. But they're not there. The number one thing is pride. Why? Because pride is the root of all sin. Now, somebody believe contrary to this. They say that, well, idolatry is the root of sin. Well, to be an idol, to make yourself an idol, you have to have pride first, to think of yourself as something. Pride is the root. That is the primary cause. 
the example was set first by Satan, the enemy of God, who also thought of himself as great through a proud look. He thought of himself as something. The book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, talk about this. What happened to Satan? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Then God responds, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. End quote. God does not share his glory with his creation. That includes angels. What right do we, or even other divine beings, to challenge and rebel against God? Satan got man to fall into sin because all he had to do was convince him to want to be like God. He convinced man that he too can be great like God. And we've been following that same lie ever since. That is the main lie, that we too can be like God. And ironically enough, it doesn't take much of a Google search to see those exact words in reference from the secular world, how we, we could be gods. It's quite amazing, actually. The same lie being hashed over and over again throughout history. It can happen so subtly pride that can swell up in an instant and consume our lives. Even the strongest Christians are not immune to this sin. I mean, you want a spirituality check? I'm in Southern California. You think you're not proud? Well, get on the freeways here and let somebody cut you off. <laughs> and, you know, the beginning of any sin in this life just begins with a proud look, and it comes out so easily in our responses. You know, in history, there was a particular event that happened that I find very fascinating. In 1715, King Louis XIV of France died after a reign of 72 years. He had called himself the Great, and he was the monarch who made the famous statement, I am the state. <laughs> Notice the I, I. Well, his court was, in fact, the most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was equally spectacular. As his body laid in state in a golden coffin, orders were given that the cathedral should be very dimly lit with only a special candle set above his coffin to dramatize his greatness. At the memorial, thousands waited in hushed silence. The bishop began to speak. Slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle and said, Only God is great. Wow. There's a wide spectrum of what we might define as great. But what are they matched against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? It seems that we think so great of ourselves. We think that we're something, but we truly have no clue. We have no power. There is no greatness in us. And this brings us to the book of Habakkuk. I want to read a few verses here to lay the foundation. In verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 3, it says, 
a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Silah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as one of light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was hiding of his power. In these first four verses, Habakkuk gives an example of God's power and the demonstration of greatness as he deals with the children of Israel or even with the wicked. In fact, many places in Scripture, you see the power and glory of God is mentioned. And ultimately, his ways are past finding out. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33 in the New Testament says, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. End quote. Not all the minds of all the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out and therefore he deserves the praise that is above and beyond all that we can render him. How can you search God out? How can you know the limit of his power? He created the universe. He created the earth. He created the angels. He created men. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God demonstrated his power at various times, and that's illustrated here in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, and starting in verse 8. It says, was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? That thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even the word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by, and the deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation at the light of thine arrows as they went, and the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. End quote. In verse 8, he speaks of the example of rivers and the seas, and it gives us a view of the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus when Pharaoh's army chased the people of Israel. And you see the example of this in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13, where Moses is Moses and the children of Israel standing before the Red Sea. And it says, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. End quote. Here God parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel to cross over. And when the army of Pharaoh tried to pursue after them, God brought the sea crashing down on them. It also gives us a picture of the parting of the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3. You can find that in verses 13 through 15. That's the next portion that Habakkuk is talking about. And the people of Israel, they cross over into the promised land. Then in verse 11, it again refers to the book of Joshua, 
sun and the moon standing still in the sky until the battle was done. That's actually quite an amazing story. I'll have to talk about that on another podcast, but you'll find that in Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. How much more will God deliver his children like us, us, from our strife and our troubles? Think about that. If you're born again, how great is God in your life? Psalm 138 and verse 3 says, In the day when I cried, thou answered me and strengthenest me with, a, with strength in my soul. The mighty God that saved your soul also brings you through your troubles. But, you know, there's only really one catch to all that. You have to have trust and faith in him to do so. As the famous hymn goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You know, there have been so many that have been hurt in this life that they forget about the greatness of God. And in fact, they do quite the opposite. They blame God foolishly. It wouldn't be the first time, even in scriptures, that such had happened. The book of Job is, a, is about a man seeking answers to his suffering. There were even some who were tempted to say, Where was God when this happened to me? Where was God when this happened in my life? Where was God when? Well, God was in the same place he was when he watched his son die on that bloody cross for the sins of the world. We must keep everything in the right perspective. Not everything is because God did it to you. Hey, sometimes we do things to ourselves in this life. It's not God's fault that man disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. It's not God's fault that man chose to listen to the, uh, the lies of Satan. It's not God's fault that man continues to rebel against the word of God. I mean, think about it. How would you feel if a, you had a child that rebelled against you, that goes out his own way, destroys his life, then he comes back to you and says, hey, it's all your fault. It doesn't even make sense. He made his own choice. See, the second part of this, though, is that sometimes God does allow us to go through suffering, but it's for a purpose. God sees us through the struggles of this life, but the choice is ours whether to allow him to control uh, that aspect or part of our life or not. I actually did a full podcast on this, dealing with the book of Job and what took place. In podcast number six, it's called With a Purpose. Feel free to check that out. We do know that while God does bless us, contrary to popular opinion in mainstream Christianity, it's not on the top of God's priority list that you sit comfortable in this life. Christians are judged what they do for Christ. And sometimes that requires suffering. God rewards those who suffer for Jesus Christ. Now, of course, not self-inflicted suffering, but the life's trials that God may send our way that further the cause of Christ. I want us to distinctly remember not to pronounce our own goodness, but rather declare that God is great.
the last set of verses that we're going to look at, referencing the book of Habakkuk. It's chapter 3 and verse 17 and verse 18. It says, quote, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. End quote. Habakkuk makes a very powerful statement that no matter what pending judgment happens to the wicked around him, he will rejoice in the God of his salvation. Only a great God can save us from the wickedness of the world and the wickedness of our own sins. Only a great God can walk us through the storms and f trials and fires of this life. You know, it's been said that among the many thousands of English words, the three most difficult to say are, I was wrong. And the two most delightful words to hear is, check and closed. <laughs> but the most single dynamic word in the English language is the word salvation. Salvation means to effect successfully the full delivery of someone or something from impending danger. Think about that. This very word implies two things, that someone or something needs to be saved, that someone is able and willing to be saved. Both able and willing to save must be fulfilled. Jesus Christ is able and willing to save you and I, save the whole world, as he is the source of the great salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 says, for I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. End quote. Satan is still deceiving man today, dishing them out a cheap spirituality, a cheap form of salvation that he peddles this lie to mankind and just gets them to believe that they are great, that they can do something in the place of God's great sacrifice for the sins of mankind. There are false hopes of salvation that so many people trust in, even so-called Christians. They can trust in their education or church membership, good works, even their baptism, some type of proper upbringing or environment, you know, keeping the law of God even, a confirmation, living by the golden rule, sincerity, some type of tithing or secular organization membership and or being a part of charity organizations. But you know, there is no church in the world and no organization in the world that can save us from God's righteous judgment. There is nothing that we can do on our part to contribute to salvation. This is what makes God so great. That literally everything about our salvation, our chance to be able to stand before God in the end when we die and he sees righteousness instead of our sin because of Jesus Christ, everything rests upon him. There is nothing that we can do that contributes to that. God is great in that alone. God is not primarily interested in convincing sinners to 
give up any just particular sins, whether it's smoking or swearing or drinking, illicit sex or murder or whatever. I mean, as bad as all these may be, this is never going to save somebody. Man's greatest sin that will send him to hell and condemn him forever is the rejection of Jesus Christ. Think about that. A person can never give up the fleshly appetites of this life without first becoming born again, giving up what he thinks salvation is or who God is even. Salvation is faith in the finished work of Christ, but it's a little bit more in depth than that. What do I mean? See, faith is not just a blind leap into the dark or it's just some sort of opinion. Faith is a voluntary and sincere change in the mind of the sinner, causing him or her to turn to the Savior. It's so simple, but because of our pride, it's the hardest thing for men to do. Giving up their own pride and what they think about God. And they have to be confronted with the truth about their spiritual condition. A person is ready to be saved when they are literally at the end of themselves. We have to understand that contrary to the popular belief that just because you get saved doesn't mean that you have free reign to sin. Some people use the I'm not under the law mentality to justify so much sin in their lives. Now, it stems from bad theology, and that's another subject for another time. But if, and you know, if a person believes in this philosophy, it's quite possible they're not truly saved. I mean, how can I say such a thing? Great question. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, quote, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now, Paul is not talking about a works-based salvation. What he's saying is that some people are just say, yeah, I'll have a little bit of Jesus, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. There's lots of those kinds of people out there. If a person refuses to give up their selfish pride and they just try to come to God for salvation, he refuses them. It's only when you give up yourself and you come to God broken can you even hope to be saved. You have to realize how much you need God, how great he is, and that you have no hope outside of him. That is a person that is prime and ready to be saved. Now, don't misunderstand me. You have to strive. Once you become born again, you have to strive to walk with God until the day that you die. I mean, but that's what that word sanctification is all about, which is basically cleaning over time. I mean, that's what conforms us to the image of Christ. When a person comes to salvation, God cleanses them of their sins eternally through Christ and keeps them clean in this life through their obedience to him. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Because in the end, when you're standing before Christ at the judgment seat and you're being judged for the things that you've done here for Christ, for rewards or the lack thereof, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians as well, your sins that condemn you to hell have been blotted out, but you're either gaining rewards or the lack thereof for what you've done. 
It doesn't have to do with your eternal destination. That's where these other types of commands that God gives us in through the moral law and moral aspects of it, where it helps keep our lives clean. It helps us be a light uh, in this dark world. And there's lots of different things from witnessing the people to um, preaching the gospel to building churches and those types of things that God will reward one day. But not for salvation, but for the rewards that the Apostle Paul talks about. And of course, God doesn't really go into a lot of in-depth details about rewards because <laughs> people get kind of crazy with all of that. And how could you really understand how that's going to translate to the kingdom of God when we hardly understand heavenly things as it is? I think the fact that God says that he's going to reward us, or the lack thereof, for the things that we do is enough. But either way, through sanctification or the cleaning over time, Things about you should change over time. I don't do the things that I used to do when I first got saved. I don't drink or, or do these types of things. I mean, when I first got saved, it took me two months to quit drinking. And God was just slamming my heart to, to be able to put down the bottle. It took me two months. And then I did, and I never looked back. Now I've been clean for over 14 years now. That is part of the sanctification process that takes place in an individual believer. Learning that everything God tells us to do, not to do, or does himself has a perfect rhyme and reason to it. When a Christian really understands this concept, he or she can really begin to appreciate the plan of God. Then they can really begin to appreciate the greatness of God. Remember, God is great. I want to thank you for listening. And be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content. And remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.